Are you constantly asking yourself, are my children in the right school setting? Do we as a family love our school option? Leah and I are moms in West Virginia, helping families answer the question, do you love your school? Because we want every family to respond with the resounding yes. Kim and I are here to help families explore the many educational options available in West Virginia and bring hope to families so they feel empowered and encouraged about their education options. Welcome to We Have Hope. Welcome back to the second half of the interview with Gabby. Let's jump right in. And that self-awareness, like that was something I had never been more self-aware in my entire life than when I did my grad program. And it was awful and excellent at the same time. You know, like, (laughs) why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? Well, I know why. I don't want to acknowledge. I want to be ignorant to that. I don't I don't want to, you know, explore that right now. I just want to feel this way because I want to feel this way. And so I think having that self-awareness is important. And that's something we try to teach kids like this you know, personal responsibility. You can't help what happened to you, but you can um, control your reaction. Like all of that is is part of that and using coping skills like a calm down box and, mm-hmm. um, you know, leaving the situation and coming back. Like all of that is part of it. I mean, even the the fighting is a coping skill. It's not a good one, but it's a coping skill. It, it, it met the need that was happening. And so the importance of trauma-informed care is something that we talk about. And I feel like on some level, trauma has been this like buzzword. Everybody has trauma. And, and what I think that that does is that it um, I, I don't want to deny that a lot of people have it because I think that we are more comfortable as a society to, to discuss our trauma, to discuss the things like I am a word vomiter. I will I will tell you everything. Um, I have done that before and scared some people off. And that that's fine. I, I share openly on social media about the things that I've been through in my life. And I think that all of that is important. Um, but then sometimes, you know, I feel like it can be watered down. That it's, oh, you have it too? Sure. And we can kind of compare, like, what well, it wasn't as bad as theirs or mine's worse than theirs. Why are they complaining? And we kind of do it from either side. And so this this notion of trauma-informed care has been around for a while. Um, I remember it earlier in my career talking about it, but it's not something that everybody uses. There's still a ton of practitioners out there um, who don't use trauma-informed care. I have had, I had a, a police officer once, which like, um, I've had really great ones, but this one like tackled a girl because he walked, she walked away from him. And I'm like, this girl has so much trauma. Mm-hmm. Like it was not trauma informed care at all. I had, um, I worked in a group home once and these, uh, this girl was mad about something and she is like hitting the window, like not going to break it. Just, just mad. And these six guys of 300 pounds come in and tackled her to the ground. And I'm like, this is not trauma informed care. This is traumatic. This is making it worse. And mm-hmm. so, how do we know that somebody is trauma-informed? How do we know that they do that? I know that you are. And so what are some things that you do? And then what are some things that parents can look for if they feel like maybe they personally, because I think a big part of being a parent is going on your own healing journey, figuring that out because kids are a mirror of your behavior. They will reflect back what you're doing, good or bad. My daughter can sound just like me with the attitude and everything. And I'm like, ooh. Ooh, I got to work on that. Okay. And so they will, they will <laughs> yeah. reflect it back whether you like it or not. And so as parents, it's important to gain that self-awareness and to go through their own, tackle their own demons, turn around and face their past, work through it. Because I think when you do that, it it the monster kind of lessens a little bit because you have a better understanding of it. But how do you how do you navigate this? How do you know 
just because they say they're trauma informed, they are trauma informed. So I guess that's my question. Like, how do you, how do you figure that out? Um, and why is that so important? Hmm. I think we have to understand like how trauma affects the brain before we can really fully step into that. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked about this on your podcast, but have uh, you ever talked about the amygdala part of your brain? No, no. I do. I did discuss the brain a little bit when I talked about trauma in when I talked mm-hmm. to foster care classes. And I have talked about it with kids in that, like, sometimes your brain turns off mm-hmm. and it disconnects. Like, I, I actually used an actual plug today when I was talking to kids in my day job and I unplugged it and I said, this is like when, and I used it with anger because you're out of control. And I said, when you're in this, it was these zones of regulation, which are really cool. And so I'm like, when you're in the red zone, you are disconnected. Like yeah. this light is your brain and this plug is your body. You literally disconnect and you're not communicating. So, mm-hmm. um, but names of the brain, parts of the brain? No. Yeah. So the, um, <laughs> the amygdala part of our brain is basically it like senses threats and it Mm. just assesses if something is threatening to us or not. Mm -hmm. And when it kicks on, we go into like fight, flight or freeze mode, which I'm sure we're all aware of that. Mm -hmm. For kids who have experienced trauma, their amygdala will kick on sometimes for small things and they'll have Mm -hmm. a heightened emotional reaction. The things that to us don't seem as big of a deal, but it's probably because it triggered something in them that reminded them of a time their amygdala kicked on and they were actually in danger. And it's usually like a sense, like they smelled mm-hmm. something, they you said mm-hmm. something that reminded them. It's not something you did on purpose, typically. Yeah. And so when our amygdala kicks on, our frontal parts, the frontal lobes of our brain kick off. And that's that's the part of our brain that does logical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when kids are in these like freak out modes, we, I've called it the limbic hijack or the amygdala hijack. Yeah. They are not in the they don't have the ability to make logical decisions. Mm-hmm. You cannot reason with them. You cannot be like, well, Johnny, it really Oops. isn't that bad to have green beans on your plate. Like, it, yeah. There is no talking sense because it looks like you're angry. Would you like to talk about it? Right. Because no. their amygdala is on and their frontal lobes are completely offline. Like yeah. you said, pulling the plug out. Um, And so I think in classroom settings, this looks like sensory overload or freaking mm-hmm. out or getting upset or throwing things. The kid and- that randomly flips his desk and you're like, what happened? Everything mm-hmm. was fine. Exactly. Um. And so a trauma-informed care is basically looking at every behavior through this lens of, is the amygdala turned on? Mm. Is it not? Are we thinking with our frontal lobes? How can we help you turn your frontal lobes back on through cool down yeah. boxes, by the way? You yeah. can do that uh-huh. through that. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so whenever you're calmed down, your frontal lobes are engaged again. We can actually talk about what just happened. Um and I don't know if there's enough training out there for mm-hmm. people in the schools who are dealing with the kids every single day to understand when the amygdala is on and when it's not. And um, I don't know if that just has to start in the school. I know that in Texas, the area I came from, they were working on um, implementing trust-based relational intervention. Mm-hmm. It was um, intervention created by the Care and Purpose Institute. Um it's phenomenal. And I'll tell anybody, if you ever have a chance to take a class for it, it's amazing. Um, they were implementing it into all the schools in the district I was working on. And then I moved up here and nobody had heard of it. So um, I don't know if that's just something that needs to just keep spreading like a contagion until everybody yeah. starts practicing these ideas and looking at things through trauma lens, trauma-informed lenses. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's just, it's hard because I don't ever want to expect a teacher to have to worry about doing the work crisis intervention and, on top of their teaching job, you know? Yeah. And it, and it's, you, you want them to like recognize it not necessarily be the ones to do interventions, but at least to like recognize. And, and I've had, I've worked with really great teachers that can do that, that they, um, I had a kid who flipped desks on a regular basis and I went in as behavioral specialist and we had come up with like, with the kid, Hey, if we try this, is this okay? He didn't like to be called out in front of class if he was misbehaving. And so the teacher would just like tap his desk, give like two little taps and like walk by. And that was a reminder of like, Oh, Hey, I'm getting out of hand. Um, and then he had like a, just simple things, like a smiley face and a frowny face on his desk. Mm. And she would just touch it as she walked by of where she thought he was, or if she stood next to him, like as she's like walking around the room, he could point to where he was, like how he was feeling. And then we came up with like a behavior plan of like, he could leave the room, um, if he needed to. And so that decreased the, the, the desk still flipped from time to time. That's amazing. It, it decreased it. And it was such a simple thing. Um, that she was willing to do um, that made a, a big a big impact. And so I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. I think it's just understanding. I like the the trust-based and it really is about forming a relationship with the child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've used the love and logic principles before. I used to teach a parenting class about love and logic. And it's this understanding of its relationship first and then using like natural consequences and and Mm -hmm. stuff that happen and um, not reacting emotionally as the adult in response to it, that letting kids really take ownership of their own behavior, um, the things that they do and say, because that is very common too with kids who have a history of trauma is that they don't take responsibility for their behavior because maybe that got them hurt. And everything a kid does after the trauma occurred is to keep them safe. And that's something that we have to remember. So if somebody is going to, maybe they're having their issues um, or as an adult that they want to work through things or they're seeing some things in a student, what could, uh, I have two questions here. One, what questions could they ask like uh, a PCP or a pediatrician um, or their own doctor? Like what questions could they ask to know if they're trauma-informed? Like, are there any good questions that, we could think other than saying, are you trauma informed? Mm-hmm. And that's the obvious one. But like, is there something that is like, oh, no, they really are or no, they're really not. Um, and then what are some simple things that parents could do in their own home um, to manage um, a child's behavior? Maybe a, a, a child who is I mean, we could spend hours talking about this, but uh, just some like simple things like maybe to help manage their own responses to a child. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I th- think for the first part of that question, mm-hmm. especially if you're talking about with PCPs and yeah. in the school, I think as a parent, you have the right to ask what kind of trauma informed trainings they have gone through yeah. or have do they spread awareness in their schools? Do they do any kind of trainings throughout the year of continuing mm-hmm. education? Like you like, are, did they have more than one training? Like, is it mm-hmm. something that is ongoing? That's you have the do. right as a parent who is receiving a service from these people to mm-hmm. ask those questions and ask how they handle behavioral difficulties during the day. Um, do they, I mean, this happened to me so many times working in foster care. Like, do they just pull the screaming kid out of class and put them in the office and call the parent to come get them? Because that's happened That's happened oh, yeah. to some of my kids, you know, yep. or are they implementing um, a cool down room? I've seen 
some schools have like beanbag chairs and low lights and mm-hmm. soft music and diffusers in a room for a kid to go cool down at. Like what are what interventions are they using throughout the day? And do they have any like prevention techniques? Yeah. Are they doing anything to make sure kids aren't getting overstimulated? And what are those? And um, you are more than welcome to ask those things. I think that's really important, especially if you're letting this in like organization, like a school be with your kid, like for what, eight hours a day, like, Kim? I don't so, know. A lot of times um, it's about that. Yeah. A lot of times kids spend more time at school than they do at home. Yeah. Just because, especially if they're in a dual household, like if they have divorced parents and they are between two houses, they spend more time at school more than they spend at either parent's house. It's, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Um, how, how, like the, in the influence, like the influence is important. And so are they in the right environment and what could, um, what could be different? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if a parent is struggling with, um, being reactive more so than proactive, what are some things that the parent could do to keep themselves in check? Because I, honestly, when I did behavioral, spe- when I was a behavioral specialist, the be- most profound change I saw was when the adults in the child's life changed their responses to a kid mm-hmm. rather than the making the kid change their behavior in response to the adults, you know? Mm. So what, what do you see in the foster parents that you're like, yeah, they're killing it. They're doing Mm -hmm. such a great job. You know, what are the common qualities that you see and how they respond to, to children? Mm. I talked a little bit about the amygdala hijack and we call something the double amygdala hijack. Mm -hmm. And that's when a kid goes into fight, flight or freeze mode and the screaming, the yelling, causes the parent to go into their own Mm -hmm. and then whenever we have a double like double amygdala hijack like both of them are going at it yeah both of them are in a space where they can't make logical decisions nothing productive is going to get done Mm -hmm. you know no one is able to diffuse the situation if we're all going into this heightened emotional response state um And I've learned with like a lot of kids, just modeling behavior, Mm. modeling appropriate behavior and healthy behavior can go so far because everything a kid sees, they're going to mimic. And so if you're stating out loud, like, I'm getting overwhelmed, I'm an adult, I'm going to go take a minute to cool down and doing that whenever you need it, the kid is going to catch on to that. Mm -hmm. The child is going to see that and they're going to model that behavior. A lot of what I do like in therapy with my kids right now, with the younger ones, especially, they don't understand like talk therapy and no, processing. No. They don't. It's, a lot of it is we'll play board games. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone's ever played like Kerplunk or Pickup Sticks, like really simple yeah. board games. And those can be incredibly frustrating for a kid to yes. play. I model frustration and then I model cool down behaviors. Yeah. Um. And so like a lot of parents are like, you guys just play board games the entire time. But then after about a couple sessions, the kid is also saying, wow, I'm getting really frustrated. I'm going to take a second to think about my next move. And that's when I know that this is working, you know. And it's also like multi-step things. Like they have to think. I love board games, using them in Mm -hmm. in sessions. (laughs) They have to think like my favorite game to play was Skippo because um, with cards with older kids, older elementary kids, because they had to think not just of their next move, but how is this next move going to affect this move and then yeah. this move? So then they're thinking that multi-step directions, which they their brains are struggling with anyway. So they're thinking multi like multiple steps ahead. Like this behavior has consequence. This action has consequence. What's going to happen after that? And then they'll do this. And so it get, it models that too. I think it's so effective to do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think like as a parent, 
I'm not a parent, obviously, no. but as an adult with a child who has a relationship with a child modeling, yes. when you're getting frustrated and like when you are starting to feel like your frontal lobes are going offline, modeling that, like understanding it and acknowledging it and taking a moment to cope, use a coping skill and step away. It's I've seen foster parents do it all the time with my kids, especially some of them will be like, I don't want to be touched right now because right now I'm getting really overwhelmed and my body just doesn't feel like it wants to be hugged right now. And that sounds like a really terrible thing to be like, I don't want to hug. But for the parent to show that like body autonomy to the child Mm -hmm. is really impactful for them, you know, to see there's a time that I don't want to be hugged either. And I can state that and everyone around me is okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not only just like, advocating for yourself but it's showing that the world's not going to end if you Mm -hmm. advocate for yourself because a lot of times it's like well i don't want to inconvenience anybody i don't if i if i ask for this or i say this out loud then i'm going to hurt someone's feelings and it's like Mm -hmm. no it's accepted to for you don't have to sacrifice your own boundaries your own uh autonomy for somebody else's benefit you get Mm -hmm. to stand up for yourself and people are okay with that and they encourage it Mm -hmm. and, and they model it i think that that's that's hugely important Mm-hmm. It's a big part. Okay. Um, okay, we could talk all night. So, I, and I, and we have honestly, you guys. For I mean, the the podcast is going to be longer, but we we were talking for almost an hour beforehand because we just <laughs> it's such a, an important topic for for all three of us. Um, it's something we ask all of our guests. Um, the name of our podcast is We Have Hope, and it's it, I forever say it's my favorite question. I thought of it once on a whim, and one of my many questions that go through my head. And I think it's something that I love hearing the answers because people come from all different walks of life of what this means. So when the, when you hear the phrase, we have hope, what does that mean to you? Hmm. When you said that to me earlier, I'll say that's like a really big question. And I had to sit here for a minute and think about what that has meant for me and meant for Mm -hmm. my own life. Um, I think for me, we have hope is to have the hope that the hands of generational cycles of trauma and abuse will stop when we are the person to be brave enough to step out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That it, um, it stops with us Mm -hmm. that this thing happened to me and I am choosing to not let it continue. Exactly. I think that is hugely um, impactful. Uh, my kids asked um, a few months ago, we were coming home and my husband didn't go with us. We were out of town for the weekend with my aunt. And um, somehow we ended up talking about the things that I went through in my childhood. I mean, it was age appropriate. I kept it. They still don't know the full details of things, but they would ask questions and they're like, why is this? And, but you don't have this and and what happened or why do you say this or why don't we ever visit your dad? And like, they, they would just kind of ask these questions. And so I answered it. Um, but it was such a, a thing, like, cause we'll make the comments to them. Like, you guys have no idea. You guys have no idea. And not to put shame or guilt on them, but I say it to myself all the time. My husband and I say it to ourselves all the time, like, oh my goodness, our kids have no idea. Like, we can't believe we did this. We can't believe we did this. Like, look at what we've done. Like, and to mm-hmm. take a moment and to sit back of like, I did this really hard thing that there are millions of people out there that struggle with to do all the time. I, I've I've seen, and it's not an intelligence thing. I I have, I, I grew up with people that were some of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. And they're, 
perpetuating, they're continuing with the cycles that they grew up in. And it's not because they weren't smart enough. It's this, like, you get stuck into that mindset, similar to the mindset that you had described too, that like family is everything, the union is everything, and you don't go against it. Um, That's true in a lot of different cultures. And it's this how this transactional kind of system that is really hard to break and your brain is hardwired that this is this is you know that something may not be right but you still kind of continue to do this transactional kind of experience when you realize that there's there's so much more out there there's so much more you can do and it's it's really hard and complicated to people think you should be relieved Mm. like that you should just be relieved that these things, you know, oh, I, what I hear that sometimes annoys me is like, look at how well you did despite. Nobody thought you were going to make it, but look at you now. And I'm like, yeah, I get what you're saying. But like that somehow minimizes what I did. My father-in-law told me something whenever I got married and it's stuck in my brain forever. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, like, when you leave home, when you get married or when you start a family, you have the ability now to choose who you shut your doors and windows to yeah, and what you shut your doors and windows to. Yeah. And when I got married, it was kind of this idea of now I have the ability to shut the door to things that I don't give me peace. If it does not give me peace, I'm shutting the front door at the end Mm -hmm. of the day. Mm -hmm. And my people are on the inside of it. And that's my husband and my two dogs right now. Yeah. Yeah. But they're on the inside of it and I'm shutting the door to anybody else on the outside. And that's been huge, hugely impactful on the way I just view things now. Yeah. And he gave you that permission to do that, maybe not even Mm -hmm. realizing that's what he was doing, but he gave you that permission. Like, I've learned to forgive people along the way because as a kid, I would be angry. Like, why didn't you save me? Why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you intervene? Um, But as an adult with my own children, it gives me a new perspective of like, well, I can't intervene and fix everything that I see that is not okay. I can only do so much because what matters first is protecting my own family and advocating for whatever they need. And I will do that until I am blue in the face, but I can't save everyone. And that's a hard reality. And also you can't save people that don't want to be saved. You can't fix Mm -hmm. people that don't want to be fixed, that don't want to change, that if they don't want to do it differently, that's fine. And I've learned that boundaries aren't as much about the other person, it's about you. And Mm -hmm. in order to be in my life, this is what you need to do. Like, this is what I need. And if you choose not to do that, that's okay. I'm not asking you to change. I'm in order to have access to my life. This is what I need. And, um, you know, but without the anger of like, how dare they not do this? How dare they not change? Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a really hard, journey breaking those generational Mm -hmm. cycles and it's something that you i think part of me has always believed like you're i'm gonna get to the end of this road and be like you know look at that look what i made i don't there's no end of the road Mm -hmm. i'll live this journey for my whole life the the great thing is that my kids never had to live it that they like we're thinking of like a road like i had to build the road i had to put gravel down. I had to do all the things and then pave it. They just get to be on the paved road. And, and to me, that's breaking the generational curses or, or, you know, I've described it before as like, you know, I'm not just building a foundation. I dug out the foundation and then built it. And then from there, my kids can build upon that. Um, And that's not an easy task. Like it's not taken 
lightly. Um, and I think sometimes we skip over that. So, um, it's beautiful. it is, it's really kind yeah. of, uh, incredible and amazing. And to hear people, real people who have done it and are thriving and are able to use education to catapult them into a life that wasn't possible without it is something that is inspiring. Like it's, it's not easy to go and get a bachelor's and an, and a graduate degree, but it's something that is worthwhile to do, even when it feels really hard or even when it feels like it's never going to end and how am I going to make it there? And it's such a sacrifice in the moment. But those short-term sacrifices really, you know, lead to to major things later on because now you have options that you wouldn't have had mm-hmm. without those, uh, without making those sacrifices. So, um, yeah, I think that's lovely. I really do. Um, Gabby, this has been a delight. (laughs) It has been a lot of, um, it's heavier stuff, I think, than what we usually talk about, but I think it's so incredibly important. And, and I also want to acknowledge that we've only barely touched on how trauma impacts the brain and how, um, trauma affects parenting and affects children and behavior and, all of this is very much, I, my, my son calls it just a tinch. That's his, that's his, everything's a tinch. It's a, it's a tinch. And um, this is, this is where we're at. It's just a tinch of information. There's so much more information out there that we'll continue to share resources um, about. And um, we'll continue to uh, point people to the episode, but also to other things too. And to encourage you as the adult to go get what you need to do. Go. Mm-hmm figure out what happened and how you can be a better parent, how you can advocate for your kid, um, asking those questions. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to um, call and follow up. Why is my kid always in the office? What are you doing? That doesn't make you a bad parent. And you don't have to have a degree to ask those questions. Anybody can do it. Anybody can ask those questions. Don't ever let anybody make you feel less than because you don't have a certain title or you don't have a a degree or uh, any of those things because you're not insert, you know, put it in, fill in the blank. Don't ever let anybody make you feel less than, um, you know, you are the child's parent and you have every right to advocate until you're blue in the face for whatever that child needs. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid to do that. Thank you so much for listening to the We Have Hope podcast. Yeah, you can find us at Facebook of Love Your School WV or Instagram, Love Your School WV. You can message us anytime or you can check out our website, loveyourschool.org.